God, we are thankful for the time that we have together this morning. We are thankful that we have hands to grab and people to greet and friends and brothers and new uh, folks to meet. Uh, just a, a blessing of family fellowship, of gathering of your people. We, uh, at, at a unique time of year for folks to visit, it's really a neat blessing. We, uh, this morning, I, before I pray for another pastor and his wife and the, their church, I want to pray for those who are visiting here for the first time, that they are the first of a few times, that they feel like they're part of something. Um, I, I know the expectations that we carry as we search for a church home. And Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that we're not the only Christ-adoring people in this community. Lord, if there's a, a family or an individual that's visiting with us this morning, I pray that they'll see that this body of believers is very serious about our faith, that we are sober about the journey, that we are pursuing, that we are preaching, that we are wanting to walk in a very real journey, that this is so much more than just an entry on our schedule book, but it's our life, it's our being, it's our family, it's our identity, that we're moving together as a people. Lord, this morning I want to lift up another church and a pastor and his wife. I want to lift up a Fellowship Bible Church and John and Carrie Clark. Lord, just looking at their information on their website, from what I've read there, it looks like uh, John is serious about preaching verse by verse through your word. Lord, that's encouraging. I just pray for this church. I pray for this people. I pray that you are raising up a people on the south side of the L3 airstrip, raising up a people for your own glory. Lord, I pray that you are, through the preaching of the word and through the Spirit's work in that seed that's sown, that it'll find rich, fertile soil, and that a bright, shiny, aromatic people will be grown and equipped and deployed week after week after week and that we may serve alongside them and cheer for them and cheer for your name and your glory in them between Sundays, whether we're serving next to them in a cubicle or live next door to them in a neighborhood. We want great things for your namesake through this fellow church in our community. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that uh, you'll multiply this time that we have, that you'll speak um, through me and in spite of me and move me out of the way to equip our people in something that's often, um, at least in my life, has been underdeveloped and ignored. Lord, I pray as a result that you will grow in us wisdom and peace, and that we'll be peacemakers even as a result. Lord, we are thankful before we even launch into an engagement of peacemaking thankful that you've already made ultimate peace with us through the ultimate peacemaker, through the finished work of Christ. We enjoy him as we launch off in this time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. James chapter 4 is where we're going to be primarily camped out this morning, not exclusively, but if you'd like to turn to James chapter 4, you'll be on the page where I'm going to read a little excerpt from chapter 3 that's sort of introductory. So it's on page 1012 of your Bible that's in your seat um, holder, a little Bible holder underneath. Or if you have an ESV, it's on page 1012. <clears throat> As I read this excerpt, I want to ask you to do something that's probably one of the easiest and handiest Bible study methods that I can think of that I could actually teach here for a second from the pulpit is look for repeated words. If you want to know what a paragraph is about, you can see oftentimes repeated words that help bring things to the surface. So listen for repeated words as I read this paragraph, this introductory paragraph for this sermon. Chapter 3, verse 13. 
Who is, and I'll, I'll help you. I'm going to emphasize the words. I'm going to help you a little bit. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I was actually preparing for this message in large part, as I mentioned already, is, is coming from James chapter 4. And I make another practice of good Bible study is to read around your passage. So I'm reading in front of it, and I'm like, well, that makes sense there. This little excerpt here in chapter 4 where we're going to climb into is not the only handling of peacemaking or the only passage that we can focus on this morning, but the one in front of it explains context. James is teaching this church that wise people, if you were paying attention to my emphasis and you're noting repeated words, that little paragraph there was about wisdom and about making peace. Wise people talk about what we're talking about right now. Wise people camp out on how do we make peace. Wise people examine it. Wise people consider it. Wise people pine for it and long for it and wise people look to God to understand it and find it. Okay? That's introductory. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we started a series, what we're calling the month of conflict. We started it with this first teaching that conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. The title of every one of our sermons this, during this month start as conflict is an opportunity to blank. The first one was it's an opportunity to glorify God. That conflict is not just something that we stumble into where God must be snoozing and Satan must really be winning right now, but conflict is something that God has designed for his own glory. He does, in fact, work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things would include conflict. We don't have to think long or hard about things that we could group into that word, conflict. But we might have to think long and hard and try and figure out how in the world is God going to be glorified in that mess. Go back and listen to that sermon because it was well established, I would say. Last week, Scott brought the second message in this uh, month of conflict. Conflict is an opportunity to serve others. We serve others not by peace-breaking or peace-faking, but we serve others by finding that sweet spot in the middle of peace-making. If you were here last week, you may remember this. If you weren't, I encourage you to go listen to this message. Last week, Scott sort of developed two extreme responses to conflict. One is peace-breaking, where you go in the attack mode and go after someone. You probably don't have to think long and hard about times where you've done this or times where you've been on the receiving end of this. The other side of the continuum there is peace faking, where we just are cool toward each other, or we completely avoid each other altogether, or we completely bail on the relationship or the friendship or the marriage or whatever it might be, the church, the business, whatever it might be where that conflict is living. Scott developed, I think, well last week that both of those extremes don't honor God at all. Both of those extremes of peace-breaking and peace-faking, the place where I can think about in a number of occasions, both in my marriage and before my marriage, where I bounce from one end to the other. I can think at times in our marriage, the first... Uh, Christy and I have been married 17 years, just a, a, week, a week ago. In the first probably 10 to 12 years of our marriage, I can think of occasions where I would go from one extreme to the other. War, I'm attacking you, I'm going after you, how dare you, you've wronged the living Ben to slamming the door on the way out 
and going, getting in the car and going for a drive. See that going from one extreme to the other. Peace breaking, I'm going after you, to peace faking, I'm going to avoid you altogether. And bouncing back and forth, never really figuring out how in the world do I live in that center spot where Scott was talking about last week of peace making. Scott developed last week that there's some sweet possibilities in this center spot that all bring glory to God. And one of those things is to overlook an offense. Yes, those of you who are like me and have an overdeveloped sense of justice. Anybody else have an overdeveloped sense of justice? Where how dare they transgress me or anyone else? It's my job to point that out to them. That it is possible to overlook an offense. And that that can bring glory to God. He developed overlooking an offense. He developed reconciling. Man, that's the one where most of us really need to live is to reconcile and do the work when we've wronged somebody or when we've been wronged by someone to, in a God-glorifying way, work through to make peace. There are other places in that sweet, middle sweet spot of glory of seeking mediation maybe you can't work to reconciliation just the two of you and you need to bring someone else in to help mediate those are all really god glorifying outcomes and that's the sweet spot in the middle of god's glory and real service to others someone that says they want to serve others yet they're not going to work at peace at all you're not serving others You're not serving others the way the Lord has served us by making peace with us through Christ. Today, we're going to, in our third serving in this month, the title of this message is Conflict is an Opportunity to Grow to Be Like Christ. Now, one of the things I want to establish before we really launch off into this message, this is just a little excerpt. I'm going to read a passage to you. You don't even need to turn there. Just listen to it because this is just a brief point before we launch into James chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You could insert, don't be surprised at the fiery conflict when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I want to establish before we really launch off into the, the, the meat of this sermon is that conflict may not be a product of people not acting like Christ. In fact, your conflict at times that you may be going through may be a product of you acting like Christ. Ultimately, think about what happened to Christ. He was crucified. It went from unjust trial to unjust trial. So while conflict may be a product of living righteously, I find that much less common in my life and in yours than conflict that results from people not acting like Christ. So that's where we're going to camp out today. Is conflict that results from not acting like Christ. James chapter 4 is really going to be, it's not going to be the only place we go. It's going to be the first of two places that we really camp this morning. James chapter 4, remember we've just been talking about peacemaking and wisdom. The wise seek to make peace. And that verse right in front of it, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's almost like James has their attention. Those of you who are wise are going to be seeking to make peace. Now let me explain to you how peace is damaged or how peace is non-existent. How conflict works. He does that in the next verse. John chapter, James chapter 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or your pleasures are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now those two verses really, really have some treasure in them. The way I'm going to unpack these couple of verses is I want you to think about verse 1 as if you're in a helicopter 
and you're sitting with a commanding officer, say a general of some army, and he's flying into this war zone and this battle, and you're not really over the battle yet, but he's turning to you and he's going to give you the details about what's causing the war. He turns to you and says, quarrels and fights among you are caused ultimately by passions and pleasures at war within you. That's big picture. You hadn't gotten to the battlefield yet. Verse 2 is where you're hovering over the battlefield. There's a war below you. There's a battle below you. Now look at verse 2. Let's look more in closer detail. You can see some things in focus now. And this first part of this verse is sort of an outer bracket. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now this outer bracket, I want you to think for a moment, like this battlefield, you're hovering over it at this point. You see war being waged right down, right below you. Desire is on the far extreme. It's almost in an area of peace. It's where guys are eating MREs and maybe taking their boots off and letting their feet air out or changing their, their, getting some bullets or something. They're not in the throes of it. They're right at kind of the edge of peace, right out there at the edge of the battlefield at desire. Now, right at the center, like the, the middle hottest spot of that battlefield, that's murder. Okay, he's showing you sort of a bracket there from desire, which is right on the edge of peace, but could very easily turn into war or could very easily turn into visiting somebody's farmhouse in the middle of a, a country that's at war. Right at the edge of peace, to right at the center of the battlefield is murder. It's an outer bracket. Now an inner bracket is in the second part of verse 2. The outer part, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. The inner part is you covet and cannot obtain. Now that's getting hotter. People are fighting right there. And then it moves to, so you fight and quarrel. You see an inner bracket. There's an outer bracket, desire and murder. And then an inner bracket, that's something that's more than desire is covetousness. And then fighting and quarreling. Not quite murder yet, but fighting and quarreling. A lot of effort to sort of give you a a perspective on these things that he's sharing here. I want to break this down a little bit and deal with some words. I want to deal first with this word desire. Out there where the guys are getting their beans and band-aids and bullets. Out there where they're at the edge of the battlefield. They're not in the fray and they're not at the farmhouse. But they could be any moment. Right at the edge of the battlefield is desire. This word in the Greek is used frequently in our New Testaments in sort of a negative sense. It's translated as words like covet, just like it, 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 it is in, not here, but later on it's used often places to use covet, lust, um, things that have kind of a negative connotation. But it's also used in other places that's not so negative. Here's a couple of little excerpts I'll share with you where the same word is used. Jesus says to the disciples, he says, truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed, that's the same word, to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. It's the same word there that's not used in a negative way. These guys longed. The word is often translated earnestly desired to see and hear what you guys are hearing. Jesus uses it on the night of his arrest. Listen to this passage. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's the same word that's used over here in James chapter 4 for desire. Desire in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. And then, of course, on the other extreme, at the middle of the battle, is murder. We don't have to spend any time thinking about what that is. Murder's bad. Now, covetousness. Let me speak to this word, covetousness, just for a moment. This word is used in a number of occasions in our New Testament, and it's often translated covetousness. It's sometimes translated jealous or envy. The word in the Greek is zealous, which where you would also get zealot and jealousy. Galatians chapter 4 has a nice use. Don't turn there. Just listen to this. A nice use of it that sort of brings it into focus. 
Paul's writing to the church at Galatia, and he says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. That they make much of you is the same word that's used there for covet. Now, they're not coveting two people, but they're focused on the people. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make much of them. It's another use of the same word. Coveting here in James, which we think covet, we think about, I want your stuff. I want your car. I want your, your, you know, your place in life. It's not so much about the stuff. It's about, I want you. I'm making much of you. I want you. I want to determine what you do. I want to identify how you should move here. And I want a response from you that fits with what I'm expecting. It's used in the next verse. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I'm present with you. That word covet is used in other places as to be made much of or to make much of someone And then there's fights and quarrels. We don't need to spend any time on fights and quarrels. The thing I want you to see here is this bracket where you have the far end of the battlefield where people have beans and bullets and band-aids and desire and to the middle of the battlefield where there's murder taking place and then a little bit where it's hotter, we have covetousness or making much of people where people's responses and movements mean a bit too much and then there's fights and quarrels is what I want you to see is that desire escalates to fights and quarrels and murder. We're talking about a continuum of movement here. One of the things that I appreciated about this training that Scott and I were able to go through a couple, weeks, a couple months ago at this point with the Peacemakers Ministry is they presented this slippery slope of responses to conflict. That's what Scott shared with you last week that I mentioned this morning where we peace break or peace fake. And where we find that sweet spot where we overlook or we reconcile or we have some mediation that takes place, this slippery slope. They also introduced another slippery slope that's called the slippery slope of idolatry, and it comes from this passage. You might be thinking, what does idolatry have to do with conflict? What does idolatry have to do with what we're talking about? It has everything to do with what we're talking about. Because this word desire that's on the far end of the battlefield that could just as easily be peace at someone's farmhouse and just as easily be in the fray in a moment's notice, it's the same way in the way this word plays out. Desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. For you to have a desire is not a bad thing. Jesus earnestly desired to have the supper with his, with his followers. He said the prophets earnestly desired to see and hear what you guys are seeing and hearing. It's not a bad thing to have a desire. It might start like this. I'd like to have blank. I earnestly desire to have a good marriage, a good job. I earnestly desire trust from my teammates. That's one of the things that I desire, trust from my teammates. I earnestly desire a friendship with someone, for example, someone in particular. I earnestly desire obedient kids. It's a good thing, right? I mean, would everybody agree? These are good things. These desires that are at the edge of the battlefield are not bad things. They're out there in a good place. I earnestly desire home-cooked meals. You could put anything in there, and they're not necessarily bad things. But the problem is this earnest desire so quickly starts to slip down this slippery slope of idolatry in the direction of next it becomes an expectation. I desire this, and now I'm expecting you to give me this. That's where that making much of you comes in, where I'm expecting you to bring me these goods. I'm looking to you to make me happy by meeting this good and honest desire. And then it slips some more into demands. I must have this from you. I desire blank. I'm expecting you to give me blank. Now I'm going to demand it. I must have this from you. And then, of course, the next step is disappointment. 
because people can't always deliver what our amplified desires are. You didn't give me blank. And then it turns into judgment. Because you didn't give this to me, you are a bad husband. Because you didn't give this to me, you are a disappointing wife. Because you didn't give this to me, you have failed as a friend. And then it turns into the final step of full-blown idolatry, punishment. Because you didn't give this to me, I will punish you. I will have war with you, or I will just completely avoid you and bail on you. I might murder you, or I might leave you, the most extreme cases, or I might just simply withhold affection. Anybody? Anybody have a good and earnest and honest desire? I want to spend time with my husband. I want us to have long walks and talks and about meaningful things. And then that desire turns into an expectation. Hun, I'm expecting you to give me this. And then it turns into a demand. I must have this from you. And then there's disappointment because men are men. And very few men are thinking, honey, let's go for a long walk today. I would love to spend some sweet time with you. Good men will, but most of us err on the other side of not thinking about stuff like that. And then it turns into judgment. Because you didn't give this to me, you are failing as a husband. You're a knucklehead. And then punishment. I will withhold affection and treat you like my kid or treat you like somebody that's just living with me or treat you like a dud treat you like a meathead I see people some people smiling because they see I bet you've seen this played out I'm not picking on ladies Jessica amen's over there I'm not picking on ladies because men can do this too I'm the, you know the stupid thing that I inserted there I desire home cooked meals how many fights can happen in a home because some dude makes that a demand it goes from being a desire to an expectation to a demand to disappointment to judgment to punishment. You're not a good wife because you didn't make me a home-cooked meal every night this week. What? And guys can do this too. And then it might turn into full-blown contempt or hatred. Or it might be as simple as just being short with each other or treating someone like they don't exist. I bet this slippery slope is familiar to you. It's familiar to me where a desire turns into expectation, turns into a demand, turns into disappointment and judgment and punishment. That's sort of a detailed view of what's being shared here on this battlefield. Desire to murder, covetousness to quarrels and fighting. What's at play there when that takes place? You need to hear this word, and it's not going to be a welcome word. I mentioned it already, but you need to understand what's playing out there is full-blown idolatry. You might be thinking, man, Christians can't be idolaters. We worship the one and true living God. But what you need to realize is any of us and all of us can be prone and likely are prone to making idols of things. I'll share a passage with you. You can turn there if you'd like. It's not an essential turn, but uh, it's one that you're welcome to turn. 2 Kings chapter 17. I want you to show you. I want to show you how this can play out. I want to show you that it's possible. It's a little bit cumbersome, but it's a cool little illustration of what we're capable of as God-fearers. Okay, because I suspect that some of you might be thinking, I'm not, it's not, I'm not capable of idolatry. You must be talking to someone else. 1 Kings chapter 17. Listen to this little story. This is, you may not know this, but there was a Babylonian exile for Israel. But in, before that, there were Assyrian exile, an Assyrian invasion, and an Assyrian exile. And this is a little detail about that exile. Verse 24 of chapter 17. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Hava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim. Just say it with confidence. And placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. Okay, the Israelites had been moved out. 
And the king of Assyria moves all these people from surrounding nations in. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Of course they wouldn't. They're pagans. They don't even know who Yahweh is. But they move into Yahweh's land. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. How about that for evangelism? Isn't that people aren't believing in Yahweh? Okay, I'm going to send lions, and they're going to devour you, so you'll fear me. I was thinking about a cool illustration that those lions, in some ways, it seems sort of weird, like he's kind of going on a new animal program. It's a great picture of the law. He sends lions in to devour them. What the law has done to us, where sin gives birth and it turns into, oh man, I didn't even know that was there, and I realize I'm devoured before the living God. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you've carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he sent lions among them, and behold, they're killing them because they don't know the law of God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the Israelite priests is going to go back to the promised land, the 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 land of the Israelites, and he's going to teach them about Yahweh. So one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Beneth, the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. <laughs> I told you this was a little bit cumbersome. It's a cumbersome illustration. It's just funny. And the Shavarvites burned their children in the fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Shavarvim. Father Dugan. They also, now listen to this. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high place who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So the Israelite priests being there resulted in them fearing the Lord some. Good, right? Listen to the next verse. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they'd been carried away. Verse 41 is another statement. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. I told you, it's just a great story. It's a cumbersome illustration of the fact that we can fear the Lord and yet continue to worship idols of our own making. And our idols can be our, expecta- our desires turned into demands and expectations and then judgments and punishment. Sincere Christians can and do fall prey to this. We pull this off all the time, worshiping God and yet making idols and gods of other things and serving them. It's important for you to realize talking idolatry, we're talking conflict, that idols can be made of good desires. I mentioned that beforehand, but I want you to really see that. They're not all wicked at heart, because if you think they're all just wicked, then they're easy to dismiss. The problem is not necessarily what we want, but what we want too much. The problem isn't necessarily what we want but what we want too much. So a little excerpt from the Peacemaker's book that I thought was just well stated. It's not profound, but it was just well said. It's not unreasonable for a man to want a passionate, intimate relationship with his wife. Not unreasonable. It's not unreasonable for a wife or mother to want to stay home with her kids. It's not wrong for an employer to want diligent workers. These are not bad things. It's not wrong for a pastor to desire respect from his deacons. 
These are good desires, but if they turn into demands that must be met in order for us to be satisfied and fulfilled, they can lead to bitterness, resentment, or self-pity that can destroy a family, a business, or a church. Man, (laughs) I read that, and I was like, oh, my goodness. Idolatry. Anybody else? Idolater. I mentioned one of my things, one of my issues is I want to be trusted. It's a good desire, right? But when I demand to be trusted, that's when things go south. And they have. It can happen to all of us. We can make idols of anything and everything. I'll share with you three ways to identify if you've made an idol of something. Here's the first. Work backwards. Are you punishing anyone? Withholding affection from anyone? Cool toward anyone? Ugly toward anyone? Have you unfriended somebody on Facebook, man? Take that. I so unfriended you. I bet that hurt. I hope it did when you look back and you see I'm not your friend anymore. Like a month from now. (laughs) It will really smart then. You will feel the pain, my wrath. (laughs) Facebook just makes me laugh sometimes. It's funny. Work backwards. Are you punishing anyone? Let's go back to this. Are you punishing anyone in any way? Work back. Have you made some judgments about them? Did they disappoint you in some way? Were you demanding something from them? Did you have some expectations you placed on them? And what desire was at the heart of it? It likely was not a bad desire in the first place. If you work backwards, you can sometimes identify some idols that you didn't even know were there. Here's another cool, helpful diagnostic instrument. At the heart of your anger, when you're feeling your maddest point, ask the helpful diagnostic question, who has she wronged? I'm saying she because this is very familiar. I mean, Christy and I, we don't fight a lot now. I mean, in fact, it's like um, um, kumbaya at our house. Usually. I think it's a utopia. We, we have we fought. I mean, we've shared from, I've shared from the pulpit a number of times. Man, the first few years of our marriage, we were like, man, what have we done? It's going to be a long life. We're not going to quit on each other, but it's going to be long. And man, it's gotten so much better. But I can totally relate to this question. That's why I insert she in there. Who has she wronged? Me or God? Usually when I'm mad, it's me she's wronged. She didn't wrong God in any way. It's a great diagnostic instrument that should help you cool your jets. To take a big chill pill in your indignation to realize who that person has really wronged. You can sometimes identify some idols when you ask that question. Here's a third way to identify if you have some idols. Ask some good questions of yourselves. This book, this Peacemaker book, calls calls them x-ray questions. And here are some of them. What am I preoccupied with? What's the first thing on my mind in the morning and the last thing on my mind at night? It might be your schedule, all that you need to get done that day. It might be your to-do list. That's probably a lot like your schedule. It might be your rest. Have I ever experienced conflict because of On your agenda that day, it was rest. I'm resting right now, and nobody better interrupt my rest. It is my plan. Your work. First thing on your mind, last thing, my work. My reputation. What's behind that is fear of man. I fear man so much that I am really, I've made an idol of my reputation, and I think about it when I get up in the morning, and I think about it when I go to bed. Your looks. Uh, We can be that vain. All of us can. Your health. 
Or do we go to bed and get up in the morning thinking about our God and his priorities and his reputation and his fame and his renown and his glory? If you're like me, you're just asking that one question, likely you can bump into some things that are either idols or close to being. Another good question. How would you fill this in, this statement? If only blank, then I would be happy, fulfilled, and secure. Christy and I laugh about that, state, that, that, that sentence. We've been doing this for years before we ever read the Peacemaker book, but it's funny. Oftentimes, we'll be joking about something. Like, for example, last week we were in South Carolina where it's hilly, you know, and there's pine trees, and there's things that we don't necessarily have here. And we're driving around the hills, and, our, and we actually went up into the mountains, into Hendersonville in North Carolina. And I turned to Christy, and I said, you know, if we lived in mountains... I would be truly happy. Anybody ever made a statement like that? If only I was promoted, I would be truly happy. If only my children were more obedient, I would be truly happy, secure, and fulfilled. We can joke about it. In fact, we should joke about that because it's totally and completely not true. There are people that are unhappy and unfulfilled that live in the mountains. You might find that hard to believe, but it's true. You can drive, you see somebody frowning, you're like, you live in the mountains, man. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you, you have hills and stuff. If only I could fit in those jeans, I'd be truly happy. There are people wearing skinny jeans that are unhappy. It's true. If only I made $100,000 a year... I would truly be happy. There are rich people that are unhappy. Man. The next question. What do I want to preserve at all costs? This, I kind of bumped into this with the first question. Maybe it's my reputation. I want to preserve that at all costs. For me, I've mentioned this already, the trust and confidence others have in me. It's not a bad thing, but you can very easily make it an idol. What others think of me. What do I want to preserve at all costs? My family, my health, my income. We can very easily make any and all of those things idols. The next question, where do I put my trust? In my abilities? In my wisdom? In my spouse? In my employment? In how others treat me? Very easy to make an idol of those things. What do I fear? This is a good x-ray question. What do I fear? Do I fear loneliness? Loss, death, loss of identity, others getting to know the real me? I fear not being needed, not being consulted, not being wanted. Asking that question can bump into some idols. Here's the last question. When a certain desire is not met, do I feel frustration, anxiety, resentment, bitterness, anger, or depression? Climb into the little battlefield that we looked at already from the air. Quarrels and fights. That's another way of saying quarrels and fights. What desire has not been met? It's likely a desire gone. All read. A desire turned into a demand, turned into an idol. If you suspect an idol, I hope by this point, maybe nearly everyone in the room suspects it. My, even if I may not have identified one, I at least see that I probably need to spend some time working on this and thinking through this and examining. But if you expect an idol or a few idols, the thing I want you to realize this morning is that conflict is the escort to dethrone that idol as you grow to be like Christ. Only God could do that to take this thing that's a result of our idolatry and turn it in the vehicle that grows us to be more like Christ and less as an idolater. Only God could do that to take such a mess and work it for good. Turn to Luke chapter 6. This is the other passage I wanted you to turn to this morning. And this is be a much shorter dealing. Luke chapter 6. As you're turning there, I'm going to share with you a passage from James that 
nicely deals with this reality that conflict is the escort. James chapter 1, just listen as you turn over there to Luke chapter 6. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Steve recently preached on this. This should be fresh to us. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Insert conflicts. Count it all joy when you experience conflicts of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The vehicle for growing perfect and complete, lacking nothing, is the trial. The thing that we want to avoid, or the thing that we want to play like isn't there. That's the thing that James says, man, count it joy. Embrace it. I know it's a bummer, but embrace it because your God's going to do something with it. He's going to be glorified in it, and he's going to make something of you perfect and complete through it. Now, Luke chapter 6. This will be our last handling. In order to grow to be like Christ, you have to reckon with the reality that you're not like Christ first and that you need light shedding occasions like conflict eggs to refine you and part of this process is to constantly self-examine and submit to others examining you this luke passage is such a nice connection for this luke chapter 6 beginning in verse 39 Actually, I'm going to begin in verse 37 for the sake of context. It's so, this passage is so mishandled by so many people. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Now, the reason I say it's mishandled is so often people use that as, man, you don't have any grounds to speak into my life. How dare ye speak into my life at all? Balance it with this passage from 1 Corinthians where Paul is dealing with a church that hasn't dealt with a dude that's sleeping with his mother-in-law. Paul ends the section with this. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The teaching here in Luke chapter 6 isn't don't judge. It's how do you go about this work? If someone's wronged you or you've been wrong or you've wronged someone else, how do you go through the work of peacemaking and dealing with the wrong? Judge not, leave everybody alone. You would never deal with, you'd never work for peace. You can't work through it. You're judging me, man. It's off limits. While one verse is completely true, it does not reveal the truth completely. Luke chapter 6 is just as true. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So you have to work it. How do those things fit together? Context helps us right here where he continues. He told them a parable to explain what he's teaching. Listen to what he says. Can a blind man lead a blind man? We would say, of course not. Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, you've got to know right here he's speaking about himself. He's speaking to his disciples, and he is the ultimate teacher. And he's saying here, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained through conflicts, will be like his teacher. This mess that you're in or that you've been in or will be in is the escort to grow you to be like Christ. And then he says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Now remember, he's spent most of his earthly human life as a carpenter. How often would a speck get a, you know, a little wood chip get in a carpenter's eye? He's speaking about something he's probably experienced. 
Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log, it's hyperbole, that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that's, out of, that's in your eye, when you yourself don't see the log that's in your own eye? Hypocrites do that. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that's in your brother's eye, to take it out of his eye. This parable is teaching how we go about this work with each other. The character of this work, he says normative, in in a way that's normative for mankind. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? He says it like, that's the human way. Am I right? Is it easier to see stuff that's broken in somebody else than it is in you? Man, they're so messed up. I have such clarity on what my wife is doing wrong. But I... I'm blind to my own stuff. He's speaking about it as normative. But in this parable, he's teaching the character of God's people in launching off in this, whether it's a husband and wife or a friend or a neighbor or a friend and friend or a workmate and workmate or church member and church member, that we come in so low that we are so self-examined. Log examination. Do I have a log in my eye? Is there anything sticking out of my eyes? Is there anything in the way of dealing with this and this other person? That speck is still there. There will be things that your friends or your neighbors or your spouse or your workmate or your family member will do to hurt you. And they can be things that are dealt with. You don't have to overlook everything. You can overlook a lot. But there may be things that you look at and say, I cannot overlook that. This is a trend, and it's unnerving me, and I am praying through this, and I need to work through this with my spouse. You can, but the character of it has got to be, I am self-examined more so than I am others examining. I'm searching for logs more than I'm identifying the speck. I'm going to tell you what, when I'm sitting with two people that are crossways with each other, it could be my kids, could be someone in the church, could be counseling, whatever. When I have two people that get to the point where they're more concerned about the log that's in their own eye than the speck that's in the other, then we've greased the skids. Man, peace is coming, boy. And it's coming soon. You got two people that are saying, man, I'm not like Christ. <laughs> and yes, there's a speck here, but I'm more concerned with having my eye examined and having this thing removed when you have two people that are in that mode man you are talking about some serious peace happening quick in my experience most people love the thought of this but most people hate the application of this let's own it does anybody man please tell me what tell me what's wrong with me honey tell me how i'm letting you down Men, can any of you really run to that? Maybe we should be better about doing that more proactively instead of when things are really bad and she's cool and you're just trying to figure out why. Maybe proactively. Man, I remember when we were first married, probably the first five years we were married, we went to like a Gary Smalley. um, Is it Gary Smalley, the marriage guy? Yeah, Gary Smalley conference. Um, and only, I think there was one thing that stuck with me. <laughs> it wasn't a good thing either. It was on a scale of one to 10, rate your marriage. And I'm like, like eight, nine, maybe. And then Christy, like, like a two or a three. What? Girl, you have a bad read on this. Let me explain to you why this is an eight or a nine. I mean, this is an eight or a nine easy all day. (laughs) But seriously, for a man to get to the point where he goes, okay, let me stop talking. Let me stop fixing. Let me stop defending. And let me listen to you and you tell me why it's two or three. And how I can come about identifying why I'm 
keeping it from being more than it could be. When you have a marriage where a man is operating like that, women, is that man easy to love? And not a single amen up in here? <laughs> is that man easy to love? I would be hearing a lot of ladies, amen, singing, amen. For real. I love that guy. Man, when you're talking about people that are self-examined and they're like, here is where I fail you and where I fail God. Here it is. Let me serve it up. Let me serve it up. That does not diminish them as much as it makes much of God and much of grace. Man, what a sweet disposition. That ought to be characteristic of God's people. Conflict is a funny escort. It shows us that we're not like Christ and it's the very instrument that he uses to grow us to be like the teacher like Christ. We're going to have our supper now, and I want to share a passage with you that I think is a very appropriate passage given where we've been this morning. I'd like for you to turn there, and we're going to have what I would call a silent supper. After I share this passage with you, our deacons and elders are going to come up, and we're going to pass out the elements. We're not going to have any music while we're passing out the elements. And then once we've taken and eaten and have, have our cup, then we'll have some song. But it's going to be a little bit unique today for good reason. Let me share this passage with you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 23. Now keep in mind, he's writing to a church that has a history of division. Fights and quarrels, I mean, you could say. War. This church, in some ways, is a battlefield. And here's what he says in chapter 11. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Continues in the next verse. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Here's how he gives the instruction on how to not eat it in an unworthy manner. Let a person examine himself. Let a person do a log examination. Let a person look for idols. Then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Ironically, the judgment that we often sit in as we've already condemned and punished someone else is the very judgment that we reap as we come and take this supper, not being self-examined. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You think this thing is just spiritual. This supper is just spiritual. It doesn't really have anything to do with stuff. Sunday afternoon, Monday, it's just kind of an illustration. Well, that's a pretty powerful illustration that if you eat it wrongly, you get weak or ill. <laughs> I mean, Seriously. That's Gnostic. You need to know that's Gnostic. To separate this from this, from your flesh and your body and your health and your life, it's Gnostic to separate those things. It's all tied up. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we wouldn't be judged because we wouldn't need to be. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What I want you to do in these next couple minutes as you prepare during our silent supper, as you prepare 
as you take and receive, or as you receive them in your hand, prayerfully, that's why I don't want any noise, any distractions. Prayerfully self-examine. Examine yourself. Have I made an idol of anything? Idols, maybe? Have I demanded something that should have just been left as a desire? Am I looking to someone else to make me happy? Or something else to make me happy? Identify those idols, confess those idols, and then let's eat that supper rightly. Deacons and elders, let's pass out the elements. The supper that we take each week is a weekly reminder of how much we've been forgiven. Next week we're talking about forgiveness. We just have sort of set the stage for it. But as we take this cup and this bread and remember Christ and remember what he's done for us, we are poised for forgiveness because we remember what we've been forgiven each week. We're reminded each week. Should make for a bunch of people that are like, man, how could I not forgive? How could I not be ready and conditioned to it given what I've been forgiven? Let's take and eat. Let's take and drink. God, we are so thankful. So thankful that grace and forgiveness is so ample and so available that you are so faithful. Considering how often we uh, fail you, how often we pursue our own um, passions and pleasures, We are so thankful for the ultimate peace that you made with us through the finished work of Christ. We enjoy him today. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray.